probably one of the, the least controversial and most widely accepted, best-known verses of all the Bible uh, by those who call themselves Christians and those who do not. But uh, as we'll see as we dig into it a little bit, uh, for as much as it might be accepted as something that's agreed upon and true, people give assent to it, it's probably one of the more difficult texts in the Bible, maybe, maybe the most, one of the most difficult texts in the Bible. And there's a quote that's um, it's often attributed to Mark Twain, but, but he probably didn't say it, um, where some individual in the you know, 19th century said, you know, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that give me heartburn and make me nervous. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. And this is one of those texts, I think, that we'll, that we'll look at today. And so, before we do that, let me just quickly recap the four-week Levitical journey that we've had together. In the first week of this series, I did, I did an overview of this book, and we saw how in Leviticus, God called a community to his presence, and God is still calling a community into his presence. In Leviticus, a group of recently and miraculously freed slaves, the Israelites, they're called from slavery and death and to a community that lives in the presence of God. And I noted three dynamics to this that were explored in Leviticus. Three things that God has called the Israelites to as he speaks to them at Mount Sinai. And first, God called these people to forgiveness, to be free from sin. And a couple weeks ago, we addressed the question, how can a sinful people dwell and live with a holy and righteous God? And the answer was that through the sacrificial system set up in Leviticus, God judged their sin without judging them. Animals would die and be cast out of God's presence instead of them. And in the same way for us today, Jesus died. He was forsaken. He was rejected by God, suffered the rejection from God that we deserve instead of us. Uh, Last week, Sean Richmond came up here and we learned how God called the Israelites to holiness, right? Holiness, a distinctness, being set apart, other, different. As God's people, they're not to be like everybody else around them. It is their response to the salvation that they've been given. And in the same way today, our response to the salvation that we're given is to live a holy life that points to God, that's distinct and different. And today, in the final message, we're going to talk about how God has called the Israelites, has called us to community. God calls a community to his presence. So in the case of Leviticus, a very large group of hundreds of thousands of people are called to live with one another in the presence of God. Okay? So how is that supposed to happen Right? How are we supposed to live among one another? How, how are they supposed to act? What are the rules? And the text today gives us some really important insight into God's heart for community and how we live among one another. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Leviticus chapter 19. And we're just going to read a couple verses here in, in chapter 19. It's, it's a long chapter. But Leviticus 19, we'll read verses 1 and 2, then 18, and then 33 and 34. So listen carefully with me to what God's word says in Leviticus 19. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy 
because I, the Lord your God, am holy. In verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So before we go any deeper, let me just set up the context of this just a little bit. Leviticus 19 might have the title in your Bibles over it, Various Laws, which is, which is fitting. If you read through the whole chapter... It almost reads like a a list of what seem to be unrelated laws, rules. Uh, The first half, the Ten Commandments, are really repeated, essentially. There's some laws about worship, some laws about farming, some laws about eating. But overwhelmingly, this chapter deals with how people treat and relate to each other. It's about community. And the command to love your neighbor as yourself is essentially, it's stated twice, first in verse 18 that we read, and then again at the end of the chapter. And the command at the end even expands upon what we initially saw in verse 18 and notes that it applies to everybody, not just to the Israelites. In in other words, you know, love everybody, even the foreigners among you. Foreigners and native-born are to be treated the same, the text says. And it's hard for me to, to, to overstate how just unbelievably, like, radically countercultural this was in Moses' time. I mean, it's even countercultural thousands of years later today, that notion we're still struggling with that as a society to treat everybody equally, right? And back in Moses' time, this is a radical statement to love everybody as yourself. And the command itself, love your neighbor as yourself, it has few peers in the Bible in terms of its importance. I mean, how big of a deal is this verse? If you look at Jesus himself in the Gospels, he thinks that this command is a big deal. When Jesus is asked how to inherit eternal life by the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, how does he respond? He lists some of the Ten Commandments and he ends with, love your neighbor as yourself. When an expert in the law asks Jesus how to inherit eternal life in Luke 10, how does Jesus respond? He asks the expert in the law, well, what do you think? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's right. When Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is in Matthew 22, what does he say? Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, which Jesus says is like the first, is to love your neighbor as yourself. He says the same thing in Mark chapter 12. So that, you know, in terms of importance, that should about do it, right? I mean, if Jesus thinks that this commandment is in the top two, that pretty much says it all, but there's more. I mean, what about Paul, the apostle Paul, the expert in the law, who probably knew the scriptures, you know, backwards and forwards in Hebrew a thousand times over again. Paul says that this commandment is the fulfillment of the law. In two of his letters, Romans 13 and in Galatians 5, Paul says that love your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, all these other commandments point to this one. They're covered by this one. All these commandments that we have, 
They're complete. They're made perfect. They're summarized by love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, calls this commandment the royal law in Scripture in James chapter 2. The great 16th century theologian John Calvin said, What every man's mind ought to be towards his neighbor could not be better expressed in many pages than in this one sentence. So this commandment is about as big a deal as you can get. But what, is it, what does it really mean if we try to unpack it a little bit? As we already noted, neighbor here is a, it's a really broad term. It's a really broad term. In the text, it's clear that it applies to everybody, native-born Israelites and foreigners. In other words, you have to love anybody around you the same way that you love yourself. And Jesus famously expanded on this command in Luke 10 with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when he does, it's very clear that neighbor means anybody, even people you don't know, and even races that typically would despise each other. Your neighbor is everybody with whom you come into contact. The Knoxville team ministered to their neighbors in Knoxville when they were there as they came into contact with those people. And so the text says, love everybody you encounter or might encounter the way you love yourself. So that's simple enough. But the the tough part about this is actually that word love. Because what does the text mean by love? Especially today in in America, in in English, that the line as to what love really is, it's it's blurry. Because we can mean a lot of things when when we say love, right? And when I say love, it can often just mean that I really like something. I mean, I could say, I love Doritos, which is, which is a true statement. I love Doritos. If you locked me in a room full of them, it would be a problem, right? It'd be an ER visit before I could be extricated from the... Yeah, I just, I love them. They're great. I really like them. I love to play the drums. I love to read. I, you know, I love the beach, whatever it is. What am I, I'm just saying I really like it. This thing is very pleasing to me. So it's a a consumer's love, though, right? It's consumer's love. I consume of something or someone in such a way that it pleases me. It's an intensity of fondness. Something is very pleasing to us. It's a consumer's love. Uh, Love can also denote a feeling that we have, just an emotion. We say that we fall in love with somebody. Or maybe a friend says something really nice to me and I feel loved. You know, when I, when I looked into my wife's eyes, you know, when I proposed to her, I felt tremendous love for her. It's an emotional love. And it's very powerful. But it's a feeling. It's a feeling that comes and goes like all other feelings. And we have limited control over it as well. It's much more in step with our circumstances that we're in. But we can also use love in a deeper way. And this is the way that I want us to think about it when we talk about love in the scriptures and love in this verse in particular. This is the love that that parents will mean or I will mean when we say, I love my wife and kids. Or when we say, the Lord loves us. And here's how I would define it. Love is a commitment 
It is a commitment to give of yourself to others for their good. Love is a commitment to give of yourself to others for their good. It's a commitment. It does not ebb and flow with emotions or circumstances. We're devoted and bound to it no matter how we might feel. And it's sacrificial. It's self-giving. We give of ourselves, even to our own peril, our own discomfort or inconvenience. It doesn't matter what we get back. If you ever want to judge the depth of your love for something, just ask yourself how much you'll sacrifice for it. I mean, the deeper the sacrifice, the deeper the love. And it's other focus. We give to others. Our benefit is not in view at all. It's for the good of the other. Our self-giving is aimed at what's best for them, their flourishing, their joy, their healing, their survival, their happiness, whatever it might be. C.S. Lewis said, Love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. So Lewis is kind of saying the same thing here that I'm saying. It's a commitment. Love is a commitment to give of yourself to others for their good. That's the kind of love that's in mind in our text today. And if you read through the rest of the chapter, we won't do it right now because we're a little short on time, but that's what all these other commands are really about. Don't lie, don't steal, don't slander, don't take revenge, don't hold a grudge. They're about being committed to the thriving and good of your, of your neighbors. But we see this really clearly when Jesus interprets this command in the parable of the Good Samaritan that I alluded to earlier, right? How does Jesus interpret love in this verse? So, so you remember, remember the story of the Good Samaritan. The man, is, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's left for dead by the side of the road. And two people walk by and just leave him alone. And then another man, a Samaritan, walks by and what does he do? The text says he pities him. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his own donkey, which means that he now has to either walk or carry his stuff himself. He takes him to an inn and cares for him, the text says. Then he leaves the innkeeper money to look after him until he returns. Until he returns. Until he returns. So he's going to come back and check on him. What is the Samaritan doing? He's giving of himself, his time, his energy, his money, for the good and thriving of this man. And he's committed to it. He's not just throwing some money at him and walking away. He's making sure that he's cared for at the inn. And he's going to return and check up on him. This is loving your neighbor. And supremely, of course, we see this kind of love in God's love for us. I mean, is God committed to giving of himself to us for our good and for our thriving? I mean, God is the supreme example of this, right? The supreme example of someone who's committed to giving of himself for the benefit of others. I mean, you don't need to look any further than the cross. God gives his very self, his son, to be killed on the cross for our sake. And Jesus' death means our thriving, our life, our forgiveness, our good. 
Romans 5.8 says it. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's no greater example of a commitment to give of oneself for the good of others than what we see in Jesus on the cross. So what does the command mean? What's the cardinal rule, the golden rule for living in community? The fulfillment of the law. Leviticus 19, God says that he wants us to commit to giving of ourselves for the good of everybody around us, to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the kind of community that we've been called to. So why, though? I mean, why the community part? Especially for an introvert like me, who's disinclined to hang out with people a lot of the time. Like, why the community thing? Why is it such an easily accepted command, love your neighbor as yourself, even, even outside the church? Why does everybody recognize this as a non-controversial thing, to love everybody, to be a community in this way? It just seems to make sense. Why has God called us to love in community? Well, I, I want to just make a few notes. Uh, first, God created us to be community. Human beings are irreducibly social creatures, right? I don't even need the Bible to tell me that. Any anthropologist can tell me that, right? I don't even need an anthropologist. Everybody just knows. It's plainly obvious that we are social beings. It's a fundamental part of the human condition. We're social creatures. Uh, Even people like me, who would rather, you know, be alone a lot of the time. I need people. I need community. It's what I was made for. And what's the first thing in the Bible that's not good? It's man being alone in Genesis 2. So Adam is given Eve. They procreate. They make families. They make communities. What's one of the first things that's fractured by sin in Scripture? It's, it's the, the relationship between Adam and Eve. They blame each other. It's damaged. They feel shame at their nakedness. That's one of the first things that's fractured is community. We need community, and not just any community, but a harmonious one that's marked by love, a community where we're all committed to giving of ourselves to the good of others, a community that just sings. Everybody prospers in that kind of community. Just do the thought experiment for a second. Like, how awesome would the world be? What would the world look like if everybody was faithful to this command? What would that, you would, you would need laws. You wouldn't need regulations because everybody would be about everybody else. There'd be no selfishness, no hurt, stealing, lying, whatever it is, Right? And we know what it's like when people aren't faithful to this command. It's, it's what we see today. So why are human beings created this way? What makes us social creatures who are created for community? Well, it's also in Genesis 1, right? God creates male and female people in his own image, right? We are created, all of us, in the image of God made to reflect him, to point to him, to to be like him. And our God is a loving community. As Christians, we believe that there's one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each person unique and distinct, yet fully God. God is a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved one another for all eternity well before we were even created. 
And so, of course, if we're created in God's image, we too were meant to live in loving community. God's image, his glory, who he is, is best expressed through a loving community. His character, his purposes, his love, his goodness, it's best expressed as a loving community. That is why the Israelites are called to loving community. That's why we are still called to community today. Because God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. How else could we reflect God's character and image, God who himself is a loving community, if we weren't a loving community as well? I mean, even practically, how do you reflect God's character unless other people are around? You, you can't do it on an island. How, how can you be loving if there's nobody to love? How can you be forgiving if there's nobody to forgive? How can you be fair to others if there's no one to be fair to? How do you respect others when there's nobody to respect? If you think about Paul's list of the, the fruit of the Spirit at the end of Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, right? all of that, the fruit of the Spirit, you, you can't do that on an island. Right? You don't exhibit any of those characteristics by yourself. You need people around. You need a community. God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. And what is at the heart of God's character but love? A commitment to give of himself for the benefit of others. And love requires a community. You can't be loving without anybody to love. I take it one step further and just think about, even in this room, the diversity in community. I mean, how else could a finite human being, just me, for instance, express the rich depth of God's love and character and goodness? How could we do that? I mean, I'm, I'm not the world's most outgoing or pastoral person, but there are plenty of other people who are, and Melanie Melanson, for one, comes to mind, right? Like, holy cow, Right? And I'm not like that. But and that's okay. I have my gifts. She has her gifts. Like, I'm not the world's most uh, creative or artistic person. I, I can't lead worship for beans. I, you know, the first church I was ever at, I actually led worship for a little while. And it was a travesty. It was horrible. <laughs> it was just a complete disaster. You know, people are calling the police. Like, somebody's torturing animals next door. Like, come and stop. It was horrible. Right? That's not who I am. Yeah, Jenna, Keith, Kate, like, yes, right? Worship leaders, uh, pastoral people, artistic people, people with gifts of mercies, or whatever it is, right? All of us here, by our own personalities, our gifting, we highlight different aspects of who God is. I mean, on our own, we're just we're pieces of puzzle on, on the floor, you start to put us together and it starts to look more and more like God. As we give of ourselves in the way that we are, the way that we were created for the good of others. Why? Because God's glory is best expressed in a loving community. Jesus says this clearly in, in John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says this. He says, a new command I give you, 
love one another. As I have loved you, how has Jesus loved us? We already talked about this, but as I have loved you, Jesus says, so you must love another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. How will the world know that we are followers of Jesus? By our preaching, by our teaching, our social activism, our worship service, our building, whatever it is? No, if we love one another the same way Jesus loved us. How did Jesus love us? He was committed to giving of himself for our good. He loved his neighbors as he loved himself. That's how the world knows that we love God, that we're like God if we love each other. Because God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. God called the Israelites to a loving community, and he still calls us to that community today, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. But it creates a problem because as much as we might assent to the fact that we ought to love our neighbors, we can't do it. Because love is hard. It's hard. It has a personal cost. It can hurt. It's risky. And we're often disinclined to give of ourselves for the good of others. And that's especially true when others are not lovable. It's hard to love when we feel that somebody doesn't deserve it. So how do we do that? Well, we do it the same way the Israelites did, by the grace of God, by receiving his love, his undeserved favor first. I mean, throughout the scriptures, the Israelites are constantly reminded that they are freed slaves, that they were set free from a place of oppression and death by no power of their own. By God's initiative and God's power, they were rescued from death. And a few weeks ago, when I talked about the sacrificial system, I noted how day in and day out, and supremely, once a year during the Day of Atonement, the Israelites see right in front of them the reminder that they don't deserve God's favor. They don't deserve his presence. They don't deserve his blessings. They should be punished and cast out of God's presence, but instead an animal takes their place. And so they enjoy God's favor while the animal takes God's punishment. They're constantly reminded of God's grace in their lives. You don't deserve good, but I love you anyway. And even our text today has a reminder like this in it, right? In verse 34, it says, When a foreigner resides among you in your own land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. You see that? You guys, you used to be foreigners yourselves, and you were mistreated for it. So how, you know, just deeply ironic and arrogant would it be then if you, now that you're free, and by no power or good of your own, by the way, were to mistreat a foreigner? I mean, how, this is supremely hypocritical. A native-born Egyptian mistreats you for being a foreigner, and you endure that abuse, yet when you're free and the tables are turned, you do the very same thing. 
Uh, Kurt Muller is uh, one of the leaders of the Antioch movement, one of the very early leaders that kind of started this, this movement. And he spent some time in Waltham years ago. He was a writer. And he wrote something in an email once, I think just as a throwaway comment, but I'll never forget it. <clears throat> he said, unless the lamb learns to forgive, when it gets the advantage, it becomes the wolf. Unless the lamb learns to forgive, when he gets the advantage, he becomes the wolf. You see, the Israelites have received grace and favor and continue to receive grace and favor from God. Yet it's made clear to them that it's, it's not because of their merit. It's by God's grace. It's by his love, his commitment to his people. The only logical way to respond to that is to love others in the same way that God has loved them. I mean, failing to do that indicates that, that you never really received that love in the first place. Because that, that kind of love, the love that comes from grace that's undeserved, it changes you. It has to change you. And don't, don't miss that because it, that's the power of the command. We can love others well, even those who are unlovable, because we have been loved well even though we are unlovable. As Christians, we've received this love. While we were sinners, unlovely, worthy of punishment, and being condemned, God loved us by giving us his son. He died so we could live. He freed us, not because of what we've done, but because of what his son did. He loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. We receive that truth, the heart of the gospel, and we're free. We're free to love others the same way. But it requires that constant reminder in your heart of who we are. We're a group of freed slaves rescued by God's grace. You can't give what you haven't received. So we receive the love of God in Christ. And we can give it back to those around us and love our neighbors as ourselves. And in it, God is honored, God is glorified, because God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. If you look at yourself through the lens of the gospel, you can't help but love others too. I have sinners, unlovable people, just like you, just like me, who need a Savior just as badly as we do. Broken people, just like us, who are saved from their sin just the same way everybody else is. I heard a prayer once that summarized it really well. It said, God, help me forgive others who sin differently than I do. Amen? God's glory is best expressed through loving community. And we can love others because God first loved us. And as I... I wanted to conclude this message. As I was writing this message, I'm trying to, I was trying to think of some illustration or some quote or some something, you know, to, to land the plane. And so I'm looking through all these books. Like, oh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he probably has something good to say about community. And so I'm flipping through life together. I'm trying to find something there. And I'm looking for practical advice and things you can do. And it ended up just crushing me. And I choked on it, right? Because it's, it's just silly in a way. I mean, you can't just try harder. 
you're, you're going to fail. You're not going to make it. You can't white-knuckle it your way through loving others. Your heart's not going to be in it. You're going to fizzle out. Right? It's, it's silly. You have to receive God's love. It has to come from him. My preaching can't do it this morning. Nothing can do it. It has to be the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Only one thing, one thing can change our hearts to live out this great command as the gospel of Christ. It's only God's grace. It's only God's love that we are unlovable, sinful people with real moral guilt before a holy God and that that God, the author of life, loved us so dearly, so beyond the highest possible expression that humankind can muster, that he gave himself for us. I mean, until that truth just rocks you to your core and you're born again, By placing your faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you're made a child of God, you're adopted into his family, and receive that love, this command is going to elude you. It's going to be a struggle. And even if you've received that before, the only way you're going to live this out is by every moment just being saturated, constantly preaching the gospel to yourself, reminding yourself of who you are in Christ, who others are, in God's eyes. I mean, can you imagine, just like imagine for a second, what would it be like if, this, if everybody in this room just got a tenth, the smallest fraction of God's love for them? You just beheld and it was activated in your heart at a visceral level how deeply and profoundly loved you are. Can you imagine what would happen? How differently you'd live your life? What, what Beverly would be like? Your community, your coworkers, your family, whatever it is? If you just got a, the smallest fraction of how deeply God loves you, how it would change you? And so I don't, I don't know how to do that. There's, there's, there's nothing I can do uh, to, to conclude. And so I just want us to respond and pray for one another and, and pray to God to receive that. And let's position ourselves in, in a place to receive God's love. So the, the band can come on up and start playing. I want to reiterate that the, I'm so glad that Brian, uh, you know, prayed the blessing of the children over all of us today. You are the beloved, God's dearly loved child forever and always adored by him. You are the beloved, God's dearly loved child, forever and always adored by him. So let's, let's soak in that for a minute. And, you know, for thinkers, you might have to use your imagination and just picture the, the, the face of God, the face of Christ, whatever it is, adoring you, delighting in you. Think of the, the cross. Think of, think of Christ. 
giving himself up to torture. But with love in his heart, with you in mind, with the end in his mind, I'm doing this for these people. I'm doing this for you. Maybe picture the, you know, what is the the person that you just love and adore most in life? And just, if if it's a son or a, a parent or a good friend, a spouse, and you just delight in them, just to see them smile, right? It makes your heart sing to know that they're doing well. You love them. Where, where does that come from? That's God. That's God's love in you for that person. That's God in heaven looking upon you. I delight in you. I delight in you, John. I delight in you. I delight in you. Put your name in that, in that sentence. I adore you. I've given everything for you. All I want is to be with you. I want you to enjoy me forever. I've given everything so you could be with me and thrive and flourish forever. So let me just close with one thought where this really was driven home for me. I was... um, I was in a real dark time, struggling with this, God loving me. And I was sitting on my like, chair in the living room, and my son, Henry, was kind of horsing around in the room. And he kind of came up and jumped into my lap. <clears throat> and whatever, we horsed around for a little bit. I tickled him or something, and we had a laugh together. He's about four years old. And I looked at him. I kind of held his face. I said, I love you, Henry. And I said, do you know why I love you? And there was this pregnant moment of pause. And a million things went through my mind at that moment. Because in a way, I was asking God, like, why do you love me? Do you really love me? And I'm also thinking about how I'm going to respond to my son. I asked him this question, do you know why I love you, Henry? And he kind of looks up at me, you know, expectantly with a smile on his face. Why? And I could have said 50 different things. I could have said, because you're so funny, because you're so cute, because you're so much fun. You're such a good soccer player, whatever it is, right? And I checked myself. I'm like, no, that's not why I love him. And what happens if he's not funny? What happens if he's not a good soccer player? What happens if he's not cute anymore. Do I not love him anymore? No. I said, you know why I love you, Henry? Why, Dad? I said, because you're my son. Because you're mine. That's why I love you. And the Holy Spirit spoke that to my, that's why I love you, Brian. Because you're mine. You're my own. You're my son. You're in my family. I am your God. I've given everything for you. So whatever it takes 
Move yourself into that, that place and receive that from God. He loves you. You are the beloved. God's dearly loved child, forever and always adored by him. And he loves you because you're his. Lord Jesus, thank you for that great truth. Holy Spirit, come, help us receive that. Anchor it deep into our hearts so we can love others the same way. And in it, you would be glorified and honored. Amen.